0: The sermon is from Ephesians 2, verses 11 through 18. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. and he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access, in one spirit, to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Uh, I was, I um, thought I was praying for my, for the preaching tonight. I prayed something that I never prayed before. I don't know where it came from. I assume it's from the Holy Spirit, I hope. And, um, and I prayed this, I prayed... I asked our Father, I said, what would it be like, Father, if I were to preach in a way that just delighted you? I don't know why I thought that, because I figure he's an audience too. Like He's an audience for all my preaching. In fact, he's an audience for all my thinking about my preaching and all my practicing and all that kind of thing too. But, um, but yeah, I had this sense. I was like, Father, what would it be like to be gifted by you to preach in a way that just delights you? I don't know why I thought that. But, but, uh, but that's what I'm praying for tonight. So, Father, I pray that you would be, you would delight yourself in in the things that I say. I ask that especially because of because of um, all the sin that I have and and how I need you to to, to minister grace to me and and uh, and for all of us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So C.S. Lewis, big favorite. C.S. Lewis. has anybody ever read any all of his stuff? I don't. I never have. I never read everything. I, but I especially, I'm more fond of C.S. Lewis's fiction than I am of his theological writings. I like the theological writings. I just think they're a little dry sometimes. They don't. They don't speak to me. Mere Christianity. I've, I've used to to weep, to witness to people, but I don't think I've ever led anybody to Christ through it. It's still a little impenetrable. It's a little dense, you know. But. His book, Till We Have Faces. Anybody read that? You, you, you didn't like it, Corey. Did you, you read it? Till We Have Faces. I, this book, it's such a surprise. C.S. Lewis's book, Till We Have Faces, it's called. You don't, you don't know that one, yeah. It, I know. And this is actually one of his lesser known works. And anyway, it's set in the ancient, in the ancient, Middle, ancient Mediterranean, and the hero is a woman who hates God. She hates him. She hates him with a passion because she blames God for taking her sister. And her sister was taken by the God, and that's a part of the story. And she's bitter, she's angry, she's got it, she's got a grudge. But of course, C.S. Lewis's world that he builds. Uh, it's just, there's a beautiful, there's a beautiful note that he makes. It's, little, it's almost kind of like a, a little bit, almost like a footnote. But she, start, she describes the places where you meet the God. She has to meet the God. You have to go to the place to meet the God. And the place you meet the God, though, the place you meet the God is buzzing with flies. It's dark. It stinks like decay. It's, it's scary. It's a scary place. It's, it's a place no one's permitted to go. It's holy. That's the word used for it. It's like you feel holy. And, and this picture that's, that's cast in this, in the narrative, is, it, it invites you to imagine that holiness looks like that. And that's a very weird thing for me. <laughs> because when I think holy, I always think something kind of bright and shiny. You know, like uh, uh, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. When Isaiah beholds that, the train of God's glory fills the temple. Remember? It's an iridescent light. Right? It's kind of cool. What about this dark place? Is that a picture of God? Yes. It must be. How could you you ask me, wait a second, Chris. Buzz of flies, the smell of death, uh, the cries of the dead, the horror of death and murder, that's holy? Yes. Yes. And I say again, yes, it must be. It must be. It absolutely must be. For that's Calvary. See, that's the holy moment, that's the holy place where you're, yours and my, our God's love was sealed and, and worked a great salvation for us, right? It was in the smell of death, in the buzz of flies and the stench of decay that God was saving men and women like Clay and Carol and me. Isn't that awesome? That's the holiest place that's ever been on the earth. Calvary. See, that's what C.S. Lewis is getting at. There's an underbelly to holiness. There's an underbelly, as it were. Like a, there's, a, there's a dark side, as it were. And, and that dark side is a part of our God. And one of the reasons I want to talk about this is because we need, we, need, we, we need to have a very biblically driven, very biblically informed, very biblically based. I don't see a Bible there. I know I always use these as props only, but still, I do read it. And, and you know, so. But the idea, though, that we're we're only going to be informed and shaped, or by by what we by what we find here, not by our comfortable models for who God is. And that's what this text does. That's what this text does, I think. And I translated it for you. I don't know if you you noticed it in Caroline's reading, but I translated it a little bit differently than the ESV. There are Bibles in your pews, so you can you can you can always check my translations against one that's more authorized, (laughs) done by smart people. But I changed two words. Now take a look with me at those words that I changed. They're right here in verse 14, and then again in verse 16. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hatred. Now, the SV says hostility. They're both legitimate translations, although I think hate, a little punchier, a little, little more to the point. But I think we'll see that both translations can work because both translations say something about God. But before we even get there, I translated hatred to get at, that, at what ekthros, even the word ekthros in the Greek sounds a little nasty, it sounds a little rough. Ekthros, it doesn't sound like something nice. Ekthros, it's hatred, it's enmity, It's hostility. Now, whose hatred is this? Let's take a look at it. It's two times in the text it's described as hostility. And what I am going to claim today is that, is that the, the, the peace described three times in this text. The peace that, that, is both, that is made, that he himself is, and that is ultimately preached in verse 17. That peace, that's the one side that's being presented in the gospel. But the peace is the answer to what? The hatred, the dividing wall of hatred, the hatred that has to be killed to be put to death, it has to be gotten rid of. So what I am going to claim today is that our text, with peace and hatred combined in it, as it describes both peace and hatred, it is describing our Father. It is describing our God and his relationship with us. It is the living God as a person who hates. Now, and I, right at this moment, I love, one of the things I love about this is because it suddenly keeps presenting to us something that we don't reckon about God. He's a person. Persons hate. <laughs> Forces don't hate, right? <laughs> Gravity doesn't hate. Uh, you know, the sun doesn't hate. No, inanimate things don't hate. Only persons can hate. And God is a person (laughs) It's it's one of those things that just kind of leaps out of the text for me and 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 I think has to for us because we need we really need uh, To get over our one-dimensional very one-dimensional shallow visions of God every one of us has one and a lot of times We don't realize that we that the one we have is inevitably wrong (laughs) And has to be worked on, has to be schooled, has to come under the authority of the Scripture again and again. We all have models for God, we all do, and we gather them from all the Bible, the Bible, Bible passages we read, the sermons we hear, and usually, God usually winds up being kind of a homunculus. And what we create, like a, like, a, like a Frankenstein monster of all the different theologies we've heard over the years, if you ever think about the way you look at God, there's a lot of things you put together in the picture that don't really make a whole lot of sense together sometimes. But usually, he's all about love. He's like some big, big teddy bear of love or something. That's generally the one dimension that God arrives in in our consciousness, in our awareness. But the scriptures push back. Oh, they push back. And every negative emotion God's got him. God gets angry. He doesn't get angry. He burns with anger. Hey, what else? God's envious. He says he envies. God is jealous. He even calls it one of his names. Jealousy, anger. He hates. All the negative emotions are, are actually a part of who God is. It's funny. The reason we don't think this way it's because we access our negative emotions sinfully. We, t- we tend to grab, we tend to either get into our hatred or anger or jealousy or envy through our wickedness, right? Through our selfishness, through our, through our self-love. That's how we get to those emotions. That's how we, that's how we ca- characterize them and claim them. But not this God. you know what I love about this especially? One of the things I loved early on about theology was how mathematically... Elegant it was. You ever, you ever studied systematic theology? It's gorgeous. Everything's really well organized. You could I mean, seriously, you could, you could nail God to a wall. I mean, you got to dress... Do you hear what I'm saying? God, our God is a definition-busting God. It's who he is. He's always busting definitions of what we think we know. It, he is by nature such a God. He, he is greater than categories themselves. What a God. What an amazing cr- creator. And he has all this wonderful complexity that you and I have with all these different emotive states. Now, I don't want to say how he is in them or how he's in them eternally, but I do know he is all of them perfectly forever. And that's a model that right when we start getting to these models, we start getting to model a model that's very biblical, that's informed biblically. You know why I love this God so much when I start to describe him, when I start to reach towards him with my mind? Well, he's greater than I think. And and that's a God I can worship, right? I meet a lot of my my my, my fellow believers who I think are very happy in life, period, but they kind of have God by the tail, I guess. You know, they've got their definition. I think you got God by the tail, you don't have much joy in life. <laughs> you know, because that's not God, that's a false God, you see. And we must repent constantly of our false visions of God. We must constantly be addressing them and correcting them. That's why you have to be in your scripture constantly. Because what you do is, you'll come up with a vision of God that just isn't quite like the Bible. You always will. <laughs> and that's why you always come back to it, to correct it. And you always correct it with others. And you're always in community. And you're all, because the discovery of knowing everything there is to know about God, well, we could fill up the entire universe with just writing it down. That's kind of cool, right? So the point being, this is kind of straight out the gate here, is we're being introduced to a God who we cannot pin down, who we cannot reduce, who we cannot control, who is a living person, (laughs) you see, capable of hatred. Who does he hate? Who does he hate? It's all humanity here. That's in view. It's all those who uh, who who he has who are what does it say alienated from the Commonwealth of Israel, separated from Christ, having no hope, and without God in the world. Uh, yeah. But all right. So what I'm to do now is I want to understand this hate in two ways: the hatred that's being described, now, God's hatred, the dividing wall of hostility. I think there's two ways biblically in this text to understand it. There's two ways to understand it. They, they make sense to us. And the first way we process God's hatred is, it's kind of, I, I, I didn't know how to describe it, but I'll describe it this way. There's a, there's a way that God, is, God hates professionally. <laughs> and what I mean is, it's, it's, it, it is the inevitable outcome of consistency with his pure justice. In other words, God, God, to be God and to be perfect and to be without, without error, without the stake forever. He has to always be consistent with himself, right? He always has to have integrity with every action and reaction of who he is. He, he, has, to be, he has to have complete wholeness if he's going to be eternally good and eternally pure. And so he has to maintain all of these things at one time. So there is a sense in which... That when God talks about hate, it's not like human hate at all. It's, it's the inevitable response of a holy, righteous, and pure God who loves justice to do what? To hate sin. To hate sin. To recoil with all of his being. We know what hatred is. We all know how hatred feels, right? Well, hatred is a whole capture of who you are against something. That's the first way, does it? We're going to take a look at that in the text. And the second way he does it is much more personal, I think. It's a personal way that God, it, it's the implication that he, he invites you to intimacy, right? He's invited you and me to intimacy. And if I invite you into intimacy, if that's the, if that's the, the, if that's the nature of the relationship I seek with you, and you tell me, ah, I don't want that, God, I don't need that. You can imagine, and so I hope you get a picture here, of why it's such a personal response from God when his love is refused. It's such a personal, it always is personal for him. But remember, the objective and the subjective are both in God. He can be both objective and subjective at the same time, right? Because he is both, yeah, he's, he's everything. He can be both things at the same, I love that about him. And, and we're gonna see, the objective, the objective uh, nature of his hate and the subjective nature of his hate, they form like two halves of the same, of the same, the same reality. So if we're going to look at the purity of his justice and the availability of his, his intimacy, we're going to understand, I think, what it means for the scriptures to talk about him being a God who hates now, because of the purity of his justice that he has as a living God, we must seek to tear down his hate wall. He's torn down. Actually, he's torn down his hate wall. Take a look at it. Let's take a look at the text itself. Um, it, 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 it's actually the dividing wall of hatred. That's kind of an interesting combination of words. It's kind of a little unnecessary. A wall obviously divides stuff, right? right? A wall is a dividing thing itself. But this the reason I think it's mentioned twice, it's, dividing, it's a dividing thing and a wall, or it kind of doubles down on the language. By the way, that language of dividing, only time in the whole Bible that word occurs. And there's only like two occurrences in all of the Greek language, like all the Greek literature we have. It's a very, very rare word, very, very specialized. But it, it, it contains in it, it's a very... Understandable words, it's combination, but it just means division, division of separation, partitioning, as it were, partition. Well, that's interesting. So, it's a very intentional hatred, right? It's a very intentional, it, it, it's, a, it's a hatred that has a, it's been put up, right? It's not, it's not casual, it's not, it's not thought, it's just very thought through. This is a, this is, this is a statement. You, and you know what I love about You know what I thought was strange about this? I feel so strange about this statement how many of you have seen the four spiritual laws presented and here's God on one side and you're on the other side and there's a big chasm in between have you seen that and then the cross comes in and the cross bridges the chasm right there's this big gulf between you and God and it bridges the chasm The, the cross does that that's a beautiful picture it ain't Paul's picture it's really strange Paul doesn't think that way Paul's like, no, it's not a gulf. It's more like a big wall God put up and said, you don't come in here. Period. It's much more personal <laughs> than just a gulf. Does that make sense? Like it, it is intentional. <laughs> it, it, it is his intention that you are rejected by him. He, he is making very clear. And you must know this to know who he is, as a holy God. Just even, so even every very language is communicating his intention and the fact that this is something worked out, this is something, but, but we have all the clues. Did you just find the clues? The clues are all over because he talks about covenant. He talks about blood. He talks about covenant, he talks about blood. Gee, that, that's, that's the key, little silver, golden key that kind of opens up, opens up the, the purity of his justice. So how do you make a covenant? How and why does he always bring up blood? All right, it, it, actually, I never thought about it until I was thinking about tonight. But this actually, a, a, a pews really work. So imagine this is half a chicken, the breast and the leg of half a chicken. And this is the breast and left of another half a chicken. Walk a little further. We'll put a lamb here. We'll put the. We'll put the back half of the lamb here and the front half over here. Cut right down the middle, make it easy. What do we put up here? Let's put some doves and pigeons here. We'll cut the pigeons up and we'll put half of the body here and half the body there. We're going to make a nice corridor, a corridor, right? It's like that. It's our covenant corridor. But really, it's a carcass corridor, isn't it? Kind of gross. This is how you made treaties in the ancient world. So, if I was a king, I would have set up all this gore, and then I would, let's say I was having an agreement with Corey. i say, Corey, come here. You and I are gonna walk through the gore together. You and I are gonna walk. I'm gonna walk through, and you're gonna walk through. And I want you to look at each piece of, of destroyed animal. Because if you break this agreement, I'm gonna do that to you. And if I break this agreement, you get to do this to me. That's the agreement. That's how serious this is for me. It's a covenant. And then the only way you make a covenant in Hebrew The only way it's made, you don't make them. You cut them. A covenant is cut in the Bible. That's the language always used in Hebrew. Abraham cut a covenant with God. God cut a covenant with Abraham. Why why use the word cut? Because you always cut up the animals. So, So you have a very clear visual picture, so even children could understand it. Isn't it interesting that God loves very visual, clear pictures? Just Anyway this is another one just like, just like that blood in the, at the table he talks about the covenant there very clear picture so what is the sacrificial system you know you're supposed to you know there's peace offerings there's, there's, there's friendship offerings there's goodwill offerings there's, 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 there's guilt offerings what, what are all these endless dead animals for what is it it's you showing up and saying uh, I screwed up again here's a lamb I screwed up again here's a bird I don't want to walk. I can't, I can't walk down. The, I can't satisfy the covenant. I, the covenant demands if I break it, I must die. I must be destroyed. I must be ripped apart. I am evil. I have died. And that's the point of covenant and blood. Because peace and peace offerings in the Bible could only be satisfactory. Any offering, any approach to God could only be satisfactory through blood. And let's face it, animal blood is just animal blood. And that was all a prep, and that was all an advertisement, and that was all a preview, and that was all a way. It was all a gift. The sacrificial system was a gift. The the cutting of a covenant were the gifts so that you and I could see, and we could track, and we could know this is the way God loves. And what does he do? Jesus walks twice. He walks for you. He walked for me. and He walks for himself. So when the covenant is broken, Jesus goes to a cross and dies for men like Corey and me. Covenant breakers. God's hatred is his anger at the violation of the covenant standards. Yeah, yeah there's a reason why Jesus, it says, in, I think it's the book of Mark. Can't remember which one. But one of the writers says that Jesus in Gethsemane, he was amazed. He uses that word. How do you amaze the Son of God? Seriously, how do you amaze the Son of God? It's not a positive thing in that moment. It's the moment where he grasps just what this is, like where his understanding is growing. Or his understanding as a human, as a man, as the God-man is throwing, that he must be the satisfaction of all of that hatred, all that hatred. Yes, it's all coming down. It's all coming down my boy. It's all coming down. And at that moment, Jesus is at his weakest. Weakest you ever see him. You never see him like this any other time where he's just... No man could do this to him, right? No man could make him feel this way. Because he knew what the hate of a God, the guy's father, would mean. He knew what a holy hatred would create for him. And that's why he goes, and he goes for you and me. Now, why is Paul so excited in this text? Because there's three ways peace is talked about. First it was preached, then it was made, and then it was, then it was he himself. And this is him making peace made peace in the blood of jesus made peace for that covenant relationship now so this introduces us to some vital thing that you need to know for how you get along with god you must have a transactional relationship with him they're part of your relationship with god must all will always have a transaction in it and that's okay he he set it up that way he wants it and by the way All of our relationships always have a transactional part. They all do. We can't help that. It's a part of being human. We transact. We transact in lovingly, but we still transact. Mm, mm. There's something I really love about God being transactional. Because sometimes I don't even feel bad about the sin I do. What do you do then? It's a a contract. It's a covenant. There are standards. There are rules. I confess my sin. I don't even know how to feel bad about it. God says, no, I, I'm paid. I'm fine. I'm satisfied. What? Yes! Because God understands transactions. You know, you know what's written in the law? An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a life for a life. God set up the entire shebang so it would totally make sense, logically, eternally, and morally, that he could be the, sat- the sacrifice substitute in the covenant carcass walk. Praise him. And all you need to do is trust him in this. Trust him. To trust him for your salvation. Because then you're saying that Christ's carcass walked. That's all I need. The Son of God, satisfaction, the blood. And then what has happened? He made peace. That's the word for making that poem where it's wonderful. Forged! I love this part of God, the objective part of God. like Because I know God. it's kind of scary that God has this pure justice, that he's so radically clear about it, and the soul that sins must die, and all, those, and all the rules are in place. But oh, what a wonderful Savior, what a wonderful God, that he then organizes and sets up the possibility. And I'll tell you what, I think he is deeply pleased when we are transactional. I think he's saying, like, Father, this is my sin, I need you to take care of it. And I need stuff from you. You got to get out of this habit of of trying to figure out if you've been good enough to get an answer. Do you guys do this? I do this all the time. I do it almost um, uh, pathologically. Like I'll sit there going, "Wait a second, wait a second, wait a second. If I if if I if I I sinned at all this week, am I going to be able to preach?" I think that that goes into my head, you know. And you know how much I sin? It's like a it's like shooting fish in a barrel. So every week I'm coming here going, "Ah, I'm afraid." You know what I have to do back there before I go to the Lord? I have to. I have to get back to transactions. I have to. I have to make a transaction. I have to. Deli- I say, Father, deliver to me what I do not deserve, because I trust Jesus, and I failed again. This is the these, this is the constant account we're to be taking with God. And what is this doing? Oh man, this is this just tears down the wall. The wall's gone. <laughs> Walk in. <laughs> Nobody's giving you back. There's no wall. Free access. Come on in. That's why the text ends. We have access together to one Father, but one Spirit to the Father. I'm sorry. So, so, the objective nature of this it invites us into this. You know, it also tells me. I love this. Uh, this happened by a friend of mine who told who, I, who wrote this. I think it's really really powerful. That's also why we practice forgiveness transactionally, and I, he calls forgiveness the iron discipline. <laughs> about when we forgive others, the iron discipline. You're not given any choice but to forgive. You know that? Do you know that you are commanded to forgive? If you don't forgive, you are disobedient and have no reason to hope to ever go to heaven. That's how clear God is about this. If you don't forgive people, that's how grievous it is. It's sh- and there's a reason for that, and we can get into it. But the stakes are high here, right? <laughs> the stakes are very high in that moment. We are to forgive, and I think we, we need to do a transaction. Uh, I taught Tal this, and it's been a great thing. I was taught by another pastor many years ago to do it. Will you forgive me for what I did to you? Yes, I forgive you. Transact. We do, I, I, I've done it, I, I think I've done it with some of you. I think it's something you should do in your marriages. It, there's a transaction, and we, are, we should be doing this all the time. That's what God taught us to do. You know, you, know one, you know one of the beautiful things about it? It kills hate. <laughs> it does. It kills it breaks down barriers. It's still, it's still breaking down barriers. Isn't that funny? But it broke down the barriers, and God Almighty breaks down barriers between us, too. It's really beautiful. Of course it does, right? Why wouldn't it? Why wouldn't it? Uh, the subjective sense of God's anger, then, is something that we meet, and we, we, we're called to, to do the work of forgiveness to, and to do the business with Him, to do the business with each other, to ask for it, to give it, to work it, whether we feel it or not. To, and this is this pleases the work of a living God. So, I began with, we need to get out of these one-dimensional, dead-end views of God. You've got to get in your scriptures. You've got to constantly be refreshing that, because it gets sterile so quick. It needs to be alive, because he's the living God. There's nobody like him. You're going to be constantly discovering that. And as you discover the transactional nature, that transactional side you begin to see how the sacrifice for sin is now kind of being repeated in you as you now like surrender your heart to other others. All sorts of things. You become like Jesus in ways that are, you would have never expected as a forgiver, as a funny radiating his forgiveness. All sorts of things happen. Just because of the transaction. What does the transaction mean? But then there's another part of this, isn't there? Because it wasn't just preach peace announce. In a sense, that's what I did at the beginning by telling you about what God's really like. Just announcing, preaching, guys. It's more than just making peace. What's the final nut here? It's ah, it's, it's now, it's personal, too. There's something unbelievably intimate about God. And the reason I want to bring this up so carefully is that I think this generation needs to hear that our God hates I think it's a very simple thing that people need to hear. I think people will not like it, by the way. I think people will what? How could a god, that doesn't even, how how do gods hate? Because they have have an old Greek idea about gods or some pure idea about gods or some idealized idea. They don't know what they're talking about. But I I love this idea that, yeah, all right, so, this last part, he himself is our peace. (sighs) The Dividing walls down, you notice with the next, the next time he talks about hatred, it's not about tearing down the wall of hatred. What is it? It's killing hatred. You know, this is no longer objective, is it? This is very subjective. This is like I am killing hate. I'm killing it personally. This is a very much a. This is an active engagement of God. He Himself is our peace. What's this final thing about God's? God's hatred is extraordinarily personal. As is His love. Yeah, I mean, you might wager that because his love has been given so freely in his son, this, this makes him even angrier when that, when that kind of love is rebuffed or rejected. <laughs> make me angry, would it make you angry? I'm a person, you're a person, he's a person. That's how persons act. But this last point, um, uh, let me see if I can... I had a turn of phrase I wanted to, I wanted to read to you. Oh yeah, there's no impersonal sin. You know why? There's no impersonal God to sin against. This doesn't exist, right? Our God is intimately personal. You could even, even the atoms that are inside this piece of wood are adhered and cohered because he is present with them. That's presence, y'all. Yeah. But then there's a presence in his grace and his life that's even more real. And this last thing, you know, I, uh, <laughs> I don't think I've ever quoted Trump in a sermon. But I do remember watching the... Was it The Apprentice? Was that his show? I can't remember what the name of the show. Was it The Apprentice? I can't remember now. But he had this show where he, uh, he would teach people how to be business people. And then they would compete with each other. I remember watching it. And I remember it was one night. I only watched one or two seasons. It was on for a while, I think. And, but one night, somebody did something bad to somebody else in their group. And they said something. You've all heard. Oh, it's not personal. It's just business. You ever heard that, that kind of expression? It's not personal. It's business. You know? And Trump's sitting in the room, and he stops. He stops. He goes, wait, wait, "Wait a second! Wait a second! I don't. I can't stand that expression." You know what? I, you know what I discovered? It's always personal. And when he said that, my light bulb went on in my head because I was like. I'm the same way. It's always—it's never impersonal to me. It's never impersonal to the person getting screwed, is it? It's never impersonal to the person getting hosed. It's never impersonal to somebody. You know, it's just—in other words, what he's saying is true. There's a deep truth in it, right? And that truth becomes extraordinarily relevant when it comes to God, right? Because it's always personal with him. It has always been a personal offer of Himself. It has always been his holy purpose to be with us. And so, therefore, you know, on the, 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 in a sense, the corollary of that deep availability of love in his heart, there's also what? What's being described here? A wall of hostility. I would reckon, and this is totally, I'm going off the, going off the books here. I'm actually going outside my theology books and everything. But I even wonder if that dividing wall isn't the wall holding back his judgments? God is God's that intolerant of sin. <laughs> Something's gotta hold him back. I always figure it's the cross. It must be the cross anyway. This last, this last uh, kind of invitation to, to know God and, and to know the God who loves us this way and, and to know him as God, I, I wanted to share something that was in the text about it. But you know what? I just realized I'm done. It's six uh, Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you for your words. I <laughs> thank you so much tonight for your words. And I pray that we would hear... Hear how much you're inviting us with your person. This idea that you're welcoming us as a friend, that you're welcoming us as one person to another. You know, we were sitting here singing about you as God in three persons. I, I, Father, I, I, what's it going to be like to? Do we get to talk to all three? I, I, Father, I just, I am. I wonder what heaven's like. What you're like there. And I thank you for the way you begin to reveal yourself in our, our Bibles, in our Scripture. And this idea that we have access together by one Spirit, right now, this moment, the reason I can even talk to you right now, right here, and, and all these folks join me, and we can all, they all have a sense, we know you heard us, is because, it's because of this. It's because you, you tore down the wall. You killed hostility. You killed your, your, your hatred. You put it to death. You put it to death. To welcome us in. And to welcome us into grace. Father, as we and, and welcome us into your love and welcome us into so much freedom. And Father, we do we do come to do some transactions with you. Some of us have a, a load of filth at times we need to we need to unload on you. Father, some of us are hungry for a more personal knowledge of you. We feel like you're 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 ever you're just outside of a sense of knowing you personally. And Father, if if this is, if your love is so personal as 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 your hatred is, we we ask anyway, we're going to ask that you would uh, you'd enlarge that you'd hear the cry of those hearts which really want to know your personal intimacy, who want to feel it and know yeah, your your presence. We pray that Father. We pray for folks feeling that. We pray for people who are having a hard time forgiving people. If anybody's struggling with that tonight, we pray for them. We ask that you, you would do a great work of life and power and joy and forgiveness in their hearts. And most of all, Father, that you would, yes, you would, you would continue to reveal these things to us uh, as we've been in the word tonight. And I, and I pray especially for just, a, 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 yeah, just this adventure uh, of, of growing to know you, growing in the knowledge of you and how endless and beautiful it is together we thank you for this we thank you that we thank you that we can hear your words and we can respond by with communion we thank you that this that this whole, this whole
0: thing makes sense and we can have hope in Jesus name amen